Weren't those kids amazing? And, and let's, I'll be honest with you, we were supposed to practice last week and we were unable to, so the practice you've seen, or the practice they had was just right before they came up here. They did an amazing job, and I'm telling you, to keep those kids uh, on focus and doing what they did, they were amazing. They were amazing. And they wanted to pray for you today before they left. The heart of, of, of your children is just amazing. And I am so proud of them. And I, I know you don't know everything they were supposed to do. I do, because I had the script. But you know, and you saw a couple little mistakes. But you know, as I watched them and they made a couple mistakes, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, Mike, you've made mistakes in your life. And I'm proud of you. And I love you. So I would convey that message to each and every one of you here today. No matter what you've done, where you've been in your life, God wants you to know he is proud of you and he loves you this morning. So if you don't get anything else out of the message today, remember, God is proud of you and he loves you. Well, the title of my message today is obvious. It's Through the Roof. Interesting, on Sunday, April 24th, Pastor Rob came to me and said, I would like you to present the message on June 12th. I said, okay. And he'd he done something he's never done before with, with, I think, anybody. He said, but I have a request of you. He usually just says, I want you to do the service, and you, it's up to you. But he says, I want you to speak on one of the miracles that Jesus performed while he was on, on earth. Okay? And then he says, I want you to minister that miracle afterwards. That's easy. I can do that. So that very same day, Sunday the 24th, I did the next appropriate step, and I said, Lord, what miracle do you want me to speak on? I don't know which is the best one. He knows. So I asked him. So on Monday morning, the very next day, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, I want you to do the miracle or speak on the miracle of the four friends who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And that's what the kids just performed. And you know, in all of my great wisdom and all my spiritual maturity, I, you know what I said to the Lord? Nah, that's not the one I would choose. I actually said that. I did. I said that to the Lord. So I began on my journey of discovering the miracle that I thought would be best to speak on. Now, that was on Monday morning. On Wednesday, I was in a class with Pastor Brett. And during uh, the conversation in our class, uh, Pastor Phyllis brought up an uh, interesting uh, reference. It was Mark chapter 2. The miracle in the faith of the four friends. So I, I'm, I'm hearing that, and I'm thinking, no. <laughs> that's not the one I would choose. Now, this really happened. I really did this. Then on Friday the 29th, I'm looking through my cell phone, and I get a, a, a Facebook post from my cousin Wanda, who lives in North Carolina. She belongs to a group that's called Warrior Women. So I'm looking at it. And as I read the post, this is exactly what it says. In Mark 2, Jesus healed a paralyzed man because of their friend's faith. Then at the bottom it says, this is why your circle matters. The same thing the Holy Spirit spoke to me on Monday. The same thing Pastor Phyllis spoke on Wednesday. My cousin Wanda sends that post. Being the quick learner that I am, <laughs> I said, okay, Lord. That's the one I'll talk, I'll talk about. And, but what's interesting, during that week of my self-induced confusion here, I began to search other miracles, which was a good thing. So I began to look through scriptures about the miracles that Jesus performed. Now, before I get into those, I, just a reminder, and I, kinda, I have to laugh at myself. I remember Cheryl and I raised four, four children, and they would ask us for their advice from time to time, like any children would do. Now, the three boys, this is, this is interesting, the three boys, they would listen to our advice and do just the opposite. Matter of fact, I remember Mike one time coming home and saying, hey, I just seen a guy at Circle K or down at Speedway. He gave me the greatest advice in the world, a complete stranger. You know, just do the opposite of what they did. And, and one that kind of really is funny, our daughter Sarah, Sarah, Cheryl would tell me that she would come out, I think it was middle school, she would come out of her bedroom and she'd have two or three outfits. Which one should I wear today? 
So Cheryl would give her advice, this one. Half hour later, Sarah would come out of her bedroom, and guess what? She didn't have any of those three on. (laughs) And you know, I have to laugh at that, but I gotta laugh at myself because the Holy Spirit, my Heavenly Father, told me what to speak on, and I said no. He reminded me what he wanted, and I still said no. So I gotta laugh at myself, and I gotta learn from myself. Just like our kids did to us, I just did to our Heavenly Father. But what was interesting, during that time, I was searching for a miracle to speak upon today on my own, what I thought was most suiting. I was reminded of of some pretty interesting scriptures that are in the Bible about miracles. The four Gospels record 37 specific healings that Jesus did, 37 specific ones. He opened blind eyes. Um, He healed leprosy. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He raised three people from the dead. So there's 37 specific miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels that I had to choose from. Now, this is, this is what I'm on my own. But you know, as I got looking at other scriptures, uh, Matthew 12, 15, if you have that up there, Kirsten or Jeff, I'd like to read this scripture to you. Um, and the story behind it is the Pharisees They're about to kill Jesus. In their minds, they want to kill Jesus. Why? Because people are following Jesus and not following them, which means their position, their power, their authority, their job, they're about to lose it. So they they, they create a plan in their mind. They're going to kill Jesus. They're going to do that. Isn't it amazing? These rulers of the days, these religious rulers who are supposed to uphold the law of God, who would tell Jesus you can't heal on the Sabbath, that's, you can't do that, but I want to kill you. Now, the sixth commandment, which they knew, says thou shalt not kill. But in their minds, they were more concerned about getting rid of Jesus, their position and their power, than they were what God's word said. So Matthew twelve fifteen says this, but when Jesus knew it, that they, the Pharisees were about to kill them, he withdrew himself from there, And it says, great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Isn't that interesting? We have 37 specific miracles that Jesus did, but here's a case where it says he healed them all, and it says there was a great multitude. And you know what? Shame on me. I've never known this before, but I thought, well, how many is in a multitude? So I looked it up. A multitude is 100 or more. It could be 100, 200, 300. It's more than 100. And scripture tells us a great multitude followed him and he healed them all. So even though there's 37 specific miracles, the amount of miracles Jesus performed is enormous. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 2, if you have that. It says, then a great multitude followed him. Here you go again, another great multitude. Because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Jesus was healing people from their sicknesses and their diseases, and thousands of people were following him. As you notice, the kids up here, there was a crowd around the house Jesus was in that they couldn't get through, so they went through the roof. So to sum it up, how many people or how many miracles did Jesus actually perform? We don't know. It's too many to count during his three and a half years of ministry here on earth. It's like the sand of the seas or the stars in the sky, too many to count. But in the four gospels, the very last book, the very last chapter, the very last verse, I think John sums it up so well. John 21, 25 says this, and there are are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written down one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's how many miracles. That's how many lives Jesus touched. That's just during his three and a half years here on earth. So many that there's probably not enough authors, libraries, or, or, or places to put all the miracles Jesus has performed. And, and if you think about it, if you go back from the time of Adam to today, Like today, there's uh, 7.8 billion people on earth. That's a lot of people, billion. Jesus is performing miracles today in people's hearts and lives. 
He is healing them. He's saving them. He's restoring their lives, putting them back together. The amount of miracles Jesus is doing today alone is enormous. And from the beginning of time, from Adam, there's been approximately 120 billion people on earth. So how many miracles has Jesus performed? Enormous. Enormous. He's never stopped. Just to give you a, a little perspective where I'm going here, I was born in Akron, Ohio. I, I grew up near, on a farm near Stone Creek, Ohio, and I've spent most of my adult life in Dover, Ohio. So Akron, Stone Creek, Dover. Now Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, and he spent his earthly ministry in Capernaum. Abby had trouble saying Capernaum down on, during practice, but she did it great today. Jesus spent his earthly ministry, most of it, in Capernaum. So this morning, I want to tell you two stories around the city of Capernaum. One of them was Jesus was thrown out of one city, and then he went to Capernaum immediately, and the miracle that he performed when he went to Capernaum. Well, Jesus was in the land of the Gerasenes, and when he arrived there, he encountered two men, and the scripture tells us he was living among the dead. It doesn't say he was living near the dead. He was living among them. These two men were demon-possessed. They were living inside the tombs with the corpse. They were naked. They were wild. They were fierce. Nobody could get near them. They were demonic. Uh, Matthew 8, verses 28 and 29, if we could have that. If you have your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Matthew 8, verses 28 and 29, and this is what it says. And when he had come to the country of the Gerasenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they, and they are the demons that are inside these two men, suddenly the demons cried out, Jesus, you son of God, have you come here to torment us before our time? So the demons speak to Jesus. They know who he is. They know his name. They also know their time is not up yet. And they say, what are you doing here, Jesus, son of God? It's not our time yet. They know it's not their time yet. And they know who Jesus is. What's interesting is, Otherwise, what these demons are saying is, it's not our time yet. It's like, okay, God, you got to play by your rules. But they don't play by any rules. Isn't that amazing? That's how the enemy is. The enemy wants you to play by the rules where they break every rule there is. Sound familiar today? So you see, there was an appointed time for Satan and a third of the angels that fell with him to stand before God for judgment. And these demons and this man and the garrisons know it's not yet. I don't believe they know the exact day or time, but they know it's not yet. So they say, and what are you doing here, Jesus? It's not our time. Revelation 12, 12 says, Satan is filled with great wrath, knowing that his time is short. You wonder why Satan is so angry and there's great wrath today? He knows his time is short. Does he know the exact day? I don't know, probably not. But he knows his time is short. So see, you have the demons. They know who Jesus is. They call him by his name. They know he's the son of God. Now, there is a herd of swine nearby. When they say it's not our time, it's not time for our final judgment, the demons say, if you're gonna cast us out of these people, send us into those swine. So Jesus did. Jesus said, go, and they did. So the two men who were demon-possessed are now restored to their right minds. What's interesting, there were the, if you look after sheep, you're called a shepherd. I don't know what you're called when you look after swine. I don't know what the word is. But the people who were in charge of the swine saw what happened. They witnessed it. And the, the scripture tells us they ran into the city to tell everybody what they had just witnessed. Matthew 8.34 tells us this. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from them. Wow, is that sad? This whole region of the Gerasenes is now ripe for an encounter with God. 
They are, they are ripe for salvations, for healings, for lives to be restored, to put back together. And what do they say to Jesus? Leave. We don't want you here. We want you to leave. And you know what? It seems, and, and of course, Jesus did. They said leave, so he left. If, if he's not welcome, he will leave. But what's interesting is it seems like, wow, all hope is gone now. Jesus left. And we'll talk about it in a minute. But Jesus left a remnant behind. He left his word behind. He left his power behind. First um, John Chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. And that's what he did with those two men. And you know, John chapter 6, Jesus tells us very plainly, if you invite me in, I will never in no wise turn you away. I won't do that. That's a promise he's made. I will never turn you away. Cheryl and I was counting up the other day how many graduation parties we were invited to. I think it was nine. We weren't able to make all of them. We were invited, but we weren't able to make all of them. And, but, but I'm telling you, if you invite Jesus into your life, into your situation, he will be there. We miss some parties. Jesus will never miss an invitation when you invite him into your life. So it's very sad that the people in the regions of the Gerasenes said to Jesus to leave, to go away, but he left a remnant. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm about to tell you very plainly. I am not, I am not comparing it exactly the same as it was here, even though Jesus had a remnant left behind, and we'll talk about that. But something very similar to this happened 15 months ago on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. If you have that picture, Kirsten or Jeff, what happened is Representative Greg Stubbe from Florida, they were about to vote on a bill on the Senate floor, and, and Representative Greg Stubbe from Florida stood up and quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 22. He quoted God's will concerning the bill they were about to vote on. When he was finished speaking, a congressman from the state of New York ran to the microphone. And this is his exact words. They are denying this now, but C-SPAN recorded it all. I've watched the last couple weeks. I, I will quote you his exact words. This is what the congressman from New York said. What any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern of this congress. And that is sad. You're right. They deny that's what he said, but, it, but I, I've, I've watched it. it C-SPAN recorded it. It's there. And you know, Mr. Stubbe, in his great wisdom, he's definitely a believer in the Lord, definitely. He got to the microphone, and he reminded the congressman of New York that above the Speaker of the House chair is the motto of the United States of America. I don't know if you can see it. It says, in God we trust. So Representative Stubbe from Florida reminded the congressman, above the House chair, the, the uh, Speaker of the House chair says, in God we trust. Every piece of coinage we have in America, whether it's paper or coins, is inscribed, in God we trust. On November 11, 1620, the very first governing document on what we call America today, on our shores, was called the Mayflower Compact. If you have a chance this week, read the Mayflower Compact. It was the very first governing document on this new land. And I'm just going to read you one sentence. They were saying this land we're about to embark on is for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith. So God's will is important to the United States of America. And yes, the United States is a Christian nation. It is. Now, you know, the Apostle Paul in his writings to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he admonishes us as believers to pray for all men. Pray for everybody. He admonishes that to us. Pray for all men, but he said especially for those who are in authority. And he said, in doing so, that you may live a quiet and peaceful life. 
So I, I think it, I'd be out of line here if I didn't, because I mentioned what happened there, that we didn't just take a moment here and pause. Can we just pray for those in authority? Heavenly Father, we just pause for a moment, and we, had, we, we, uh, we agree with Paul's admonishment. We pray for all men that they come to know you as Savior, but especially for those in authority, whether they're township trustees or uh, school board members or the President of the United States, anybody in authority, we pray that they come to know you, and we just ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Peter 3.9. I'm not sure if I gave you that scripture or not, Kirsten. But Second Peter 3.9 says, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to re- repentance. You know, there's many times I'm sure we've all felt this way. Why doesn't God just put an end to these people and their nonsense? You know why? Right here. Because he's long-suffering. Because he loves them. And he doesn't want them to spend eternity in hell. He loves those people. He cares about those people. He does. So even though I get frustrated sometimes, we all do. God loves these people and he's trying to draw them into him. So when the people of the Gerasenes told Jesus to leave, he left. What's interesting is uh, the, the four gospels, they all tell a little bit of a different angle of, of every story. In this particular story, it's only in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Luke chapter 8 tells us some interesting things about this story. It says when the town folks, remember the, uh, the people who were watching the swine, when they went to the city to tell everybody what had just happened, first of all, they just lost all, all, all their herd, and they're in trouble. But amazing things have happened. So they went into the city, and they told everybody what had happened. So remember, the whole city came out to see Jesus. And before they told him to leave, this is what they saw. They saw these two demonic men who were running around naked, sleeping in a tomb, scaring people. They were so fierce, nobody came near that way. They were sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and in their right mind. They saw a miracle take place, and they still said to Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you. We want you to leave. And, of course, Jesus left. So when Jesus got, this is interesting too, when Jesus left and he, got, he walked down to get into his boat, he got into his boat and there were two men that he cast demons out of him. Scripture tells us that one of those men said to Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to be with you. And Jesus told him, no, go back to your home, go back to your village and tell your people the great thing God has done today. You see, God left his remnant at that, at that city They cast him out. They told him, we don't want you. But God sent his word, his testimony, right back into the middle of them. Now, when Jesus left there, the the region of the Gerasenes, he he went to Capernaum, back to his headquarters of his ministry, which which he's been to before. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible device, turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 1. Mark 2, verse 1. And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. So people heard that Jesus was back in Capernaum. He was back in the house. It was uh, Peter and Simon's house, or Simon and Andrew's house, I'm sorry. He He was in their house, the same house where previously he had healed Peter's mother. She was sick with a fever. Jesus healed her. And if you watch Pastor Sean's uh, stream that he had yesterday, he talked about that. Amazing. He, he gave me an insight that I didn't see before. Amazing. Jesus had already healed Peter's mother-in-law at that house. People knew that he was a healer. So Jesus goes to Capernaum. He's in Peter's house. And it, he, and it was heard about the region that Jesus was back in town. The healer is back in town. So the great crowds came. What's interesting, about a month ago, I think it was, Cheryl and I were watching a video that was made in 1974. So that was 50 years ago, whatever it was. And it was made then. And they were interviewing the two people who were left alive who were at the Azusa Street Revival that were actually there. 
These two people attended the Azusa Street Revival, which was from 1906 to 1909 in Southern California. A mighty move of God took place there. So they're interviewing these two people, and they're elderly people now. One of them, her name was Maddie Cummings. And she said, as a little girl, I was deaf. And then during that period of time, if you were deaf, you weren't allowed to go to school. You stayed home. But she said, my parents heard that at this Methodist church, in Southern California on Azusa Street, there were miracles taking place. So her parents took her there. She says, I was prayed for and I was healed of my hearing. And she said, I can still hear today, hear today as well as I did then. The other person they interviewed was Lawrence Cately. When he was a little boy, he said, I had tuberculosis. That was a common thing in the early 1900s. My parents heard what was going on in the Azusa Street Revival. They heard, so they took him there. He was prayed for, and God touched him and healed him from his tuberculosis. They were the only two people in 1974 who were still alive who attended the Azusa Street Revival. They heard, and same as here. The people in Capernaum heard that Jesus was back in town. Let's look at verse 2. And immediately... Many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even about the door, and he preached the word to them. So the house is full. Peter's house is so full that there's no room for anybody else to come in. And all around the house, it was so crowded that they, nobody could get near. There were so many people there. And it said that Jesus preached the word, the kingdom of God to them. And who were those people outside? I don't know. There was probably some people there who were curious. I want want to see who this Jesus is. But I believe there was a lot of people there who were probably sick, crippled, hurting, who needed a touch for God. And that's why they were there. Verse 3 and 4. And they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Now, I'll get back to that. When we were practicing with the kids, You know what those kids said to me as Abby was reading about the four men who carried the crippled man? We're not men, we're girls. As you notice, we have more girls than we do boys. And it was the girls who said, we're not men. And I told them it was okay. You just just carry. But it was was just funny. How can can it be four men when we're four girls? But but they did great, didn't they? All right, I'm sorry. Verse three and four. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they laid down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. So four men carried their crippled friend to see Jesus because they heard Jesus, the one who was the miracle worker, the healer, was in town. So they're taking him there. And it says it was so crowded that they were unable to get their friend to Jesus. But you know what? The same faith that they had in Jesus that brought them there to do what they did, that same faith allowed them not to give up, not to quit. They couldn't get through the door because there were so many people there, but their faith in Jesus, their desire to see their friend healed was so great that they didn't stop. They found another way. Isaiah 43 tells us that God is a a way maker, that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. You may be a situation in your life and you say, you know what, there's no way out. Wrong. There There may be no way out according to human standards, but according to God's standards, Isaiah 43, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. You know, and I have to ask myself too. I have to say to myself, well, what kind of friends do I have? Who do, who, who do I, who are my circle of influence and my friends? And you know what? I, I, I look at my family and my family has always been there for us. And I look at my friends and my friends consist of you, my church family. You are my friends. Other than that, Cheryl and I have a very little life. Our friends are our family and you. You are our friends. That is our circle of friends. So I really believe if I ever needed somebody to put me on a cot and carry me through a roof, you'd be there for me. 
something happened to me about a year ago. Uh, and Mark, I see you back there, so you've been through worse than I have on this. I decided to climb up on the roof to fix a spouting. And when I got up there, I couldn't get down. I was having difficulty with mobility on my legs at the time. I couldn't get down. So I call Cheryl and I say, well, I know Mike's in Cleveland doing something with Brandon. And uh, Brad lives in Minerva, too far away. So call Dave and call Andy. I can't get off this roof. I can't. So she calls them. I don't know how fast they drove. I was in no danger. I was okay. I was sitting on the roof. I was in no danger. But they got there faster than, than the fire department could have got there. So they climbed up on the roof and they got me down. And you know what? I thank them for that. They were there. And if Mike would have been in town, he'd have been there. If Brad would have been around, he would have been there. My family would have been there for me. And I believe I could have probably called any of you here and you would have helped me. And then I got to ask myself, what kind of friend am I? What kind of friend am I? If one of you were stuck on a roof, you can call me, but I'm not coming up. <laughs> I will get help for you. Right, Mark? <laughs> we'll get help for you. And Mark, we're so glad to see you up walking around and doing well. We, we, we thank the Lord for what he's done for you. Absolutely. So it goes back to my, the, the post my cousin Wanda from North Carolina sent. This is why our circle matters. This is why. You know, there's an old saying that says, you don't know who your friends are until you're in trouble. I, I've lived that. And you know what? I found out some people that I considered my friends were not friends. I found that out. Okay, verses 5, 6, and 7. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes who were sitting there reasoned in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So verse 5 says, Jesus saw their faith. He saw that they had faith to do what they were doing to bring their friend there. They had faith that Jesus was going to heal him. That was their faith. And Jesus saw that. They hadn't even asked for anything yet, but Jesus saw that. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. You must come to him with faith, believing he is who he says he is. You must believe that. And the first thing he says to the man, now they brought him there to be healed because he's paralyzed. He can't move. He can't walk. He can't move. They brought him there to be healed. And what does Jesus say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Which tells me that even the man on the cot had a degree, a measure of faith. Because he had faith in Jesus. Because Romans 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, which is faith, thou shalt be saved. So I believe their friends had great faith and the man on the cot had faith as well because Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. Ephesians 2.8 tells us it's by grace, by the mercies of God, by the love of God that we are saved through faith. You believe that Jesus is the son of God. You believe who he says he is. And you know what? Pastor Sean and I were talking about this yesterday morning. All 66 books of the Bible point to one person, Jesus. Every book in the Bible points to Jesus. Jesus. Every book in the Bible. Matthew 16 tells us, one time Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? And some said, well, some think you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah or you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say I am? And we all know Peter jumped up right away and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter acknowledged that you are the son of God. You are God in flesh. So let's look at verses 8, 9, and 10. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason these things in your heart? Otherwise, he's telling them, I know what you're thinking. They didn't speak it out loud, but Jesus is telling them, I know what you're thinking. And he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins be forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man, man has power to forgive sins. So here we have a, a situation where Jesus knows their thoughts, and then he addresses their thoughts. They don't speak it. He knows their thoughts, and he speaks to their thoughts. And he says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk and be healed? As I was reading this, I was reminded of 1 Kings 8.39. This, this scripture helped me some time ago. Jeremiah writes in 1 Kings 8.39, he writes that only God knows your thoughts and the intents of your heart. Only God. Only God means only God. 2 Chronicles 6.30 says the exact same thing. You know, I've heard people say that they're tormented because Satan knows my thoughts and he uses them against me. He does not know your thoughts. Only God knows your thoughts. Only God knows the intent of your heart. So don't ever allow yourself to be tormented by that lie. Only God knows your thoughts. So Jesus has already proven that he has power over sickness and diseases. He's already proven that. Remember, he healed Peter's mother-in-law in the very house he's now in. He's proven that. But now he's declaring something more. He's declaring that I have power and authority to forgive sins. What Jesus is now declaring, he is saying, I am God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God. He's now declaring that. Silly question, have you ever been through a rough time in your life? Everybody has. One degree or another, we've all been through rough times in our life. But I just want to encourage you this one thing before we go on. Sometimes you've said, nobody knows what I'm going through. Sometimes you may even think, nobody even cares what I'm going through. We've all been there. Or nobody understands what I'm going through. We've all said those things. And we've all said them in legitimate ways. But I just want to remind you of three things. In Luke chapter 2, Luke tells us that God knows how many hairs are on your head. Now think about that. If he knows how many hairs are on your head, if he cares that much about that, he cares about your struggles in life. He cares about your heartaches in life. He cares about your future and the aspects in your life. He cares about everything in your life. That's what that means when he says, he, he doesn't have a list of how many hairs people have. That's not his priority. Your life is a priority. He cares about you. Every aspect of you, he cares about. Every aspect. Isaiah 49, 16 says that your name is written in the palm of his hand. Can you imagine that? God so loves you that your name, everybody here, your name is written in the palm of his hand. Now, I want to be a little silly here. When I was reading this, I, I envisioned this. This is not scriptural, not at all. I envisioned Jesus, or I'm sorry, I envisioned the Father sitting on the throne and say there's a miracle. Something happens, Pastor Christie, something great happens to you, a deliverance, a miracle, a great thing, a blessing. And I can see the Father turning on his swivel chair. The three, he probably has a swivel chair. And he looks up at Michael the archangel. He said, did you see that? Give me five. Gave him five, and Michael the archangel, there's her name right there. Now, that's not scriptural. But I can see God rejoicing. The Father rejoices over good things that happen in your life. And I don't know if they give each other five in heaven. I don't know that. I don't know. But if they did, your name is right there. That's how much he cares about you. Zephaniah 3.17 says that God sings blessings over each and every one of you. He sings blessing. Like a mother rocking their baby, singing over that baby because there's so much love. God sings blessing over each and every one of you. So don't ever allow anyone tell you that God doesn't care about you. He cares about you immense, immensely. So Jesus is speaking both spiritual and physical life to this crippled man. What's interesting, the Bible doesn't tell us what his name was. We have no idea what his name was. No idea. But God knows his name. It's in the palm of his hand. What's interesting is Jesus is in Peter's house teaching and here comes the audacity of these four men interrupts him. Who interrupts Jesus? Who does that? They did. They tore the roof off the house. 
Probably debris was falling down, and here they lowered this man. They interrupted Jesus. And you know what? Did Jesus chastise him for interruption? No. He spoke life and blessing to him. He spoke to their unwavering faith. He didn't say, hey, hey, wait a minute. There's a bunch of other sick people out here. Get back in line. This ain't Cedar Point. Back in line. He didn't do that. Jesus ministered to it because he saw their faith. Jesus ministered. So don't ever think you interrupt God when you go to him in prayer. Verse 11. I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go home. Now, didn't Christian do a great job when he said that? He pronounced, arise, take up your bed, and go home. It took Owen a little while to get up, (laughs) but he got up. (laughs) That mat must have been more comfortable than I realized. So he says, arise, get up, and go home. So he left for home. Now, Now, picture this. Probably earlier that morning, he left home with his four friends carrying him on this mat. But now he's coming home. He's walking through the front door. He's carrying the very mat that carried him. I'm telling you, there was rejoicing and celebration in that house that night. Verse 12. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed, glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, you think about it, he is now going to walk through the same crowd that would not allow him through earlier. Remember, they were going to bring him to Jesus. They couldn't get into the house because there were so many people there. They would not allow him in. But now he's walking through the crowd, not being carried. He's walking through the crowd. I'm going to tell you what that did for those people who were outside that house who were sick or diseased or needed a miracle. It elevated their faith. Because they saw that man carried in, they saw him lowered through the roof, and now he's walking out. That had to explode inside them and their faith in who Jesus was. It says they were all amazed, and they said among themselves, we have never seen anything like this, never. Well, what did they see? They saw a large crowd of people who've come to see Jesus. They saw four men carrying their friend on a cot because he's paralyzed, he's unable to walk. They saw four men take the roof off Peter's house. They heard, if, if they were close enough, they could hear Jesus speak, your sins are forgiven, and get up and go home. And then they saw the crippled man walk out of the house. They saw that. We'll come back to these miracles in just, just a moment. Um, he is one of the 37 specific miracles that Jesus performed. That is one of the 37. In the book of Job, which is likely the oldest book in the Bible, history-wise, it's the, it's the oldest book. It's not the first one. We know Genesis first. Job's more toward, the, toward the, the back part of the middle. But Job is most likely the oldest book in the Bible. And Job 1.1 says this, Job was blameless and upright and a man who feared God and avoided evil. Job was a man of God. Job was blessed by God. And the Bible tells us that Job had a wife, he had 10 children, and he was extremely wealthy. He was the wealthiest man of his land. And Job had a fear in his heart. And we'll, we'll discuss that real briefly here in a minute. He had a fear that his children would curse God and turn away from God and have nothing to do with God. He feared that in his heart. Then calamity came upon Job. He lost all of his wealth. Everything he owned was stolen. Everything. Lost it all. Then it says all ten of his children were in the oldest son's house, and a windstorm came. They were all killed. So he lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his children, and now he lost all of his health. The Bible says he had boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. You want to talk about a man who was in misery? He was in misery. But the Bible also tells us that Job, through all this, he never sinned, nor did he once blame God. He never blamed God because God didn't do it. God didn't do it. God couldn't do it, right, Pastor Brett? God couldn't do that because that's not God. He would cease to be God. God is good. 
when evil comes, it's from the enemy. It's not from God. So he didn't blame God. And I have, I have two verses in the Bible that I consider the saddest verses in the Bible. And there's more than that. But one of them is found in Job 2.9, where Job's wife comes to him and he says to him, why don't you give up on this God of yours and curse him and die? Now, that's, that's bad enough if a, if a friend tells you that or a coworker, but his wife told him that, his wife. You know, it's no wonder Job in his mind thought his children would curse God and die. That was his wife's attitude. And they heard their mother's attitude. And they, Job, I believe Job was afraid his children would pick up on their mother's attitude toward God, curse God and die. But, but we, we know the end of the story. Job 32. 42.10 says that God restored all that Job lost when, when, when's the key word here? When he prayed for his friends that accused him. If you read the book of Job, and it's a big book, but it's, it's got a lot of good stuff in there. Job had some friends that came to him. Remember we talked about the circle of friends? Who do you run with? Who, who do you associate with? His friends came to him and just trashed him told him how evil and wicked and no good he must be. That was his friends. What's the old story? If I have friends like that, who needs enemies? And you know what? Pastor Rob, for the last two months, have talked to us about being offended by people, about offense. You tell me Job wasn't offended when his friends told him how horrible he was and how sinful he was, which was not true. God took care of them. God had a talk with them too. And he told them how wrong they were and how what they said were lies and how they misrepresented who God was. God had a talk with them. But one of the things that I really like in Job 21, 14, Job is talking to his friend Zophar. Zophar is just destroying Job and saying, you must have done so many evil, bad things that God is punishing you. You must be evil, Job. You must be horrible, He's just destroying Job. I mean, he's full of sores. He's aching. And that's the comfort you give? But what Job says back to his friend Zophar, matter of fact, it, it's, it's kind of comical. Now, he's suffering. He's in misery. His friend is just bashing him, telling him how bad he was. Then Job says to, to Zophar, he goes, okay, you had your say. I'm paraphrasing. Shut your mouth and listen to what I'm about to say. He said, you be quiet. Let me finish what I'm about to say. And you got to read that in, in Job 21. But one of the things he said is, the wicked people say this, the wicked. And he says, I'm not wicked. But the wicked people say this, depart from us, God, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. That's not me, he said. You're saying that's me, but that's not me. How, how amazing Job had the uh, understanding to say, that's not me. And he told his friend, be quiet. You're going to hear what I have to say. So you think about it. Um, the book of Job, one of the oldest books in the Bible. And we see Jesus for who he is. We see God for who he is. He's a forgiver. He forgave those who were accused falsely. They lied. They lied about God. They lied about Job. He forgave them. God is a forgiver. God forgives. He restores God is a restorer. He restored everything Job lost. He, God is a restorer. And God healed Job. God is a healer. We go all the way back to Job. God is a healer. He heals people. So the same God that healed Job, that healed the paralytic man, who healed uh, Maddie and Lawrence in the Azusa Street Revival, he's here today to heal you. That same God. That's his personality. That's who he is. Now, the, the second most saddest verse in the Bible, I think, is Revelation 20, 15, if you have that, Kirsten. It says, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That's, that's a sad, that's sad. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. And you say, well, what is the lake of fire? Let's go back five verses. Revelation 20, 10. It says, The lake of fire is a place of torment, day and night, forever and ever. It's eternal. That's why God is so long-suffering. That's why God puts up with our nonsense, the nonsense of mankind, because he's long-suffering. 
He wants no one to perish. No one. I will conclude with one quick story here. Kyle, if you'd come. You know, there are events in our life that trigger memories. We all have that. I'll give you a couple examples for me. If I'm around and I saw a piece of wood, Don, Don saws a lot of wood. If I smell wood, I remember my, my dad because my dad was a carpenter. So that makes me think of my dad. If I see chickens, Hart and Jane's got chickens. They got eggs out there. If I see chickens, I think of my grandma because I was raised by my grandparents on a farm and I can still see this in my mind where my grandma would go to the chicken coop and she'd come out and she didn't have a basket, but she had an apron. If you know what an apron is. She had an apron and she had the corners of the apron pulled up and she'd have a dozen or so eggs in there. So when I see chickens, I think of my grandma. There are things that trigger memories in our lives. Three weeks ago, uh, I'm employed by the Dover City Schools. I'm in the transportation office. And typically, I stay in the office for a couple hours in the evening. That's my job. Answer the phone, help the bus drivers out. Most of my calls, because it's in the evening, are kids that miss the bus. Little Junior got busy playing around, talking to somebody, and he misses the bus. That's most of my calls. So I got to resolve that. But about three weeks ago, I was riding all 10 routes they have in Dover. So I, w I would learn who goes where and who does what. So as I'm riding the bus, I'm sitting right, right beside the door, the first seat. The door is over here, the driver's over here. I'm sitting there. So I hear that bus door open and shut probably 40 or 50 times during each route that I'm on. And I rode all 10 routes. So I know what it sounds like, you know. It's hydraulic, you, you, you know, you hear the sound. Well, this one particular day, we pull up to Dover Middle School, which is our first stop. The driver opens up the door and about 35 kids get on. So all these, and they're just yakking, you know, at the end of the day, you know how kids are. They're talking about all the things that happened and the things or whatever. They're just chattering real loud. And you know, when the driver shut that door, it was like a clap of thunder. It was loud. It was so loud, my first instinct was to look at the driver. Like, what's wrong with the door? The driver's looking straight ahead. He doesn't hear what I just heard. I heard a, thap, a, a clap. It was loud, like a clap of thunder. But you know, all this happened within about a second. And you know, it brought to my memory, and I saw this in my mind's vision. I saw Noah's Ark. I saw the door of the ark coming up and shutting, boom. Now, 2 Peter 3, 5 tells us that during the 120 years that Noah built the ark, he was a preacher of righteousness. He was telling people about the love of God. He was telling, telling them about something that's gonna happen here soon and, and you better get on board because destruction's coming to the earth. But of course, you, you know the story, nobody listened to him. Because he proclaimed something that was going to happen that's never happened before. He said it's going to rain. It had never rained before. Never. But he said, I'm building an ark because God told me you need to get on or, or you're going to perish. What's interesting, um, on the ark there was only one door. Noah built it to the specifications that God told him. There was one door. One way in, that's it. And Jesus in, in John chapter 10, 7 says, I am the door. I'm it, I'm the door, one and only door. And he said in John 14, he said, I am the truth and the life and the way. And nobody comes to the Father except by me. You wanna go to heaven, you gotta go through me. I'm the only way, I am the door, I'm the only way. Then this scripture came to me, Genesis 6, 20. It says the animals were summoned to the ark. Noah didn't go and his family, they didn't go get the animals. There were approximately 5,000 species of animals at the time of Noah. Noah and his family did not go get the animals. They didn't go out there with their lassos and get them and bring them in or herd them in. God summoned the animals to the ark. God did that. He called them. He wooed them into the ark and they came. John 6, 44 
Jesus said this, no one comes to me unless they're drawn by the Father. Same thing. You want to come to the Lord. You want to come to the Father. You want to come to Jesus. You have to be drawn. And God draws people every day. Every day. Everybody here, one time in your life, you've been drawn. Probably multiple times in your life. You've been drawn by God. Those animals were drawn by God. The Holy Spirit ministered to them, brought them there. And it's no different than our lives. We are summoned. We are drawn by God. In Genesis 7, 16, it says, When the time was full, when the time was right, the door of the ark was shut. And that's what I saw in my mind's eye when that bus door slammed. I saw that door coming up. Noah did not shut the door. God shut the door. God shut the door. The time is now. It's over. There's a time. That door was shut. And if you were inside that ark, you were, your life was spared. If you're outside that ark, every living thing perished that day. Well, it took more than a day. But Noah was in the ark for seven days, and then it began to rain. And it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Anything outside that ark perished. No different than when that bus driver shut that door and he pulled away. If you're not there, you missed the bus. When God shut the door on Noah's ark, if you weren't in, you missed it. You missed the bus. God has called every person on this planet, everyone who's ever lived, he's drawn them like he did the animals to Noah's ark. He's drawn them. He's called them to you. Pastor Sean, will you, will you come here? Pastor Brett, will you come here and stand? Today, I don't want anybody to be like the Gerasenes who said, we don't want you, go away. Don't miss the bus. Will you stand with me and bow, bow your heads, please? If you're here today and you're in need of either or both of the miracles that um, the, uh, the man in Mark chapter 2 experienced, he needed salvation and he needed healing. He needed both. I, I say to you this morning, if you're in need of either one of those, don't miss the bus. These two men and I'll be here to join our faith with your faith. So if you're in need of, of healing today, I ask you to come right now. If you're in need of salvation, come right now. If you're in need of anything, anything at all, anything in your life that you have need of, I ask you to come forward now. We would like to join our faith with yours this morning. As these people come this morning to just to receive a touch from God, to receive what they need in their lives from God, just be mindful, just, just ask the Lord to move in their lives. We all have times, and we've all went through rough times in our life where we need help. So we join our faith with their faith to receive from God. I know your heads are bowed now, but if you would be looking above the drum cage right now, you would see Hebrews 13.8 that says Jesus Christ is the same. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same God who healed Job, the same God who healed the paralytic, is here today because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever that is who our God is that is who our God is last song that Kyle played this morning in the worship team was Holy Spirit thou art welcome Holy Spirit you are welcome here today 
You're here to move in people's lives and to touch them. And we all know you don't have to be in, in a church service. You can be at sitting in your car. You can be at home. And you can call out to the Lord and he will never turn you away. Never. If you invite him, he will never miss that invitation. He will be there. That is who our God is. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Kirsten, if you could put the song up, Holy Spirit, Thou Art Welcome. Kyle, could you play that? Yes, that's fine. this morning I uh, have a couple announcements real quick the widows group that is scheduled for this Wednesday will be moved inside instead of outside because of the heat that's being expected it's supposed to be in the 90s I think so the, if you're part of the widows group please come to the church here it's going to be inside uh, women's ministry men and women women's ministry is having a what's it called again pickleball a pickleball time, Monday, June 20th at 6.30 at Dice Hill. Men, we are invited to come with, to come join them. Now, if you don't want to play pickleball, please come. Men, Pastor Christie is going to have a word for the men. I will have a word for the women. So just come, fellowship, and let's just be together. That's Monday, June 20th, Dice Hill, 6.30, and we're going to do pickleball. Also, uh, Thursday the 23rd is Senior Life Dinner at noon here. So keep that on your calendar. And Don has the offering baskets on the back, in the back. So Lord bless you and have a great day. <laughs>